But what I love about LLMs is think about it. Now everybody understands conversational interfaces and they're like, well, of course, like, yeah, so much easier just to ask exactly what you're looking for versus go to a search and get 20 documents and have to peruse the 20 documents to find the answer you're looking for. Now people get what I was saying, what we've been saying all along. (laughs) This is Found in the Rockies, a podcast about the startup ecosystem in the Rocky Mountain region, featuring the founders, funders, and contributors, and most importantly, the stories of what they're building. I'm Les Craig from Next Frontier Capital, and on today's episode, we have Rebecca Clyde, who is the co-founder and CEO of Botco AI. Hi, Rebecca. Super excited to have you on the podcast today. Thank you, Les. I think I'm more excited to be here. Awesome. We'll probably just take this excitement up to the next level here <laughs> between the two of us. <laughs> and not only that, but I also got to say extra excited on my end because you're the first Arizona founder we've ever had on Founder the Rockies. What do you think of that? Ooh, I, I love that distinction. I can, I'm going to put it on my LinkedIn. Is that okay? <laughs> add it, add it, add it to that profile. Get to 100%. Perfect. <laughs> exactly. Well, it's super exciting too because uh, Rebecca and I just reconnect. We met about a year ago at uh, Venture Madness in Arizona, which for our listeners that haven't been is an incredible event. It doesn't feel like it just keeps getting better, doesn't it? Oh, absolutely. They knocked it out of the park this year again. Yeah, yeah. Absolutely. And, and so we just saw each other about a week ago at that event. And I said, Rebecca, we got to do this. We got to do an episode. So that's 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 today. We're, I'm excited. Yes. Yeah. I like that you have a bias toward action. You should be a founder, maybe. <laughs> Well, once upon a time, maybe I was. Yeah. Oh, right, right. Yeah. Anyway, awesome. Well, Rebecca, to begin, why don't you uh, why don't you tell us a little bit about your story, who you are, where you grew up? I love origin stories. I always love to start there. Tell us about Rebecca. Sure. Well, maybe I have the distinction also of being the only guest you've had to have been born in Costa Rica, perhaps. I don't know. You got it. <laughs> Add another feather to the cap. Yeah. Yeah. So I grew up in Central and South America, actually. I lived in five different countries growing up. My uh, mother is from El Salvador. So that's where I had most of my grandparents and my uh, extended family. But due to my parents' work, we moved around every four or five years. So I lived in Guatemala as well, Chile, Argentina. And I actually graduated from high school in Paraguay which I will give you cred points if you could point Paraguay out on a map. And tell me what three countries it borders. <laughs> oh, I love being challenged. I got to tell you, if geography is not a strong suit of mine, but I, I love, I would love to visit someday and learn more okay. about Paraguay. Yeah. Well, uh, it's smack in the middle of South America, borders Bolivia, Argentina, and, and Brazil. So it kind of sits nestled nice. between those three countries. It's a landlocked one of two landlocked South American countries. Oh wow, what an what an incredible like place these places to grow up. I mean, the experiences you must have had uh, as a child. I mean, do you think that does that have a lot to do with kind of the the scrappiness and the founderness of you, like growing up in 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 some of these amazing countries and moving around a lot? Oh, absolutely. I mean, uh, you know, growing up in Chile during the Pinochet regime, for example, and understanding what it is like to live in a dictatorship. I learned that. I learned in Argentina, I lived through one of the most catastrophic economic events that ever took place where their currency devaluated to zero. The banks had to close for months while they renegotiated their loans with the IMF. And that meant that to buy groceries, we had to trade things with people. So I remember my parents like taking watches off of their wrists at grocery stores just so we could get meals and food for the family. So just crazy situations like that, that I've had to live through. So yes, you know, I, I, after you go through those things, you kind of realize like, you know what, if I could handle that, if I lived through these catastrophic economic events, through a massive earthquake in Chile, through cartels in Paraguay. (laughs) Being a founder ain't too bad. It's It's actually easy. (laughs) 
Unbelievable. I think that's the first time a founder has ever said it's easy on the episode. I, I know you're teasing. I know it's not, but uh, that's great. So, so from so graduating high high school in Paraguay, and then um, where where from there? Where did you go? Where did you go from there? Sure, I came to the U.S. to attend the university. I went to BYU, actually in Utah, another Rocky Mountain state. Yeah. Um, I was there uh, for about three years, where I I fast tracked my way through college because I was very broke and I wanted to get a job. So I went to school full time all around, all year round, summers wow. and springs. I never took any time off. I finished college in three years. And uh, when I was a senior, Intel came on campus. You know, a lot of big Fortune 500 companies would come on campus to interview students. I was a business uh, and communications major. And so, um, you know, I would sign up to interview with these companies that looked interesting. You know, lots of the consulting firms and big Fortune 500 companies would come by. And Intel really caught my eye. I, I loved technology. It was kind of the era where tech was really blowing up and I wanted to work in that industry. I had a few internships in the space and I loved it. So I ended up landing a job right out of college with Intel and uh, they flew me to three different sites to pick where I wanted to live. So it was like November timeframe. I went to Portland. It was cold and rainy because Intel has a big campus there in Hillsborough, short, uh, just north of Portland. Uh-huh. That was rainy and cold. I didn't love that. Then I went to Santa Clara, which is HQ, and uh, there was tons of traffic and housing was super expensive. And I was like, "Doesn't matter what time of year you're going to experience that." <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Exactly. What a beautiful place. <laughs> place. Yeah. Yeah. I ran the numbers. I was like, I'm going to live worse than a college student here on my, even on my good Intel salary. And then they brought me here to Arizona and it was like, perfect. November, the weather is perfection here. It's so clean. It's so nice. Uh, Housing was affordable. I ran the math. I was like, this is the place I should live because I will have the best quality of life here. And so I picked Arizona. Awesome. And, and you, 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 Fortunately, it wasn't in like July or August because then maybe maybe you would have picked rainy. <laughs> I know I might have picked Portland instead. <laughs> that's, well, that's that's true. Great. That's wonderful. <laughs> that's great. And uh, and then so so transitioning from you know college student to Intel professional, like what was that? What was that journey like? Big company. I mean, you you gotta you you gotta feel you know. Like, you got to feel that coming out of school, kind of interesting experience, right? You know, I loved it. And, you know, Intel at the time was a very dynamic and challenging place. So Craig Barrett was the CEO and they were just coming out of the, it was still the Andy Grove era of Intel. He was, Andy Grove was the, the chairman at the time, but that culture really permeated the way that Intel people worked. So it was a very high achieving you know, high uh, expectation culture, which I love and thrived in. Um, You know, they had a lot of these concepts like constructive confrontation, which really meant like you had to know how to give very direct feedback and how to take very direct feedback. Um, They had uh, at Intel is where I really learned the, the importance of scaling. Everything at Intel was about scale and massive scale. So if you proposed any idea or came up with any concept or worked on any kind of product, everything had to be thought about in terms of scale. And so they had this notion called uh, copy exactly, where everything that you did had to be copied exactly globally at every Intel site, every Intel facility. You know, so it just it forced like the epitome of scale. Oh, yeah, exactly. And so it forced me to learn that level of thinking at a very young state stage in my professional career, which I just loved because I was like a sponge. I wanted to learn as much as I could. Um, Intel also gave me the opportunity to uh, work in different functional areas of the business. They had these rotation programs for a lot of the new up and coming leaders And so I got to work in product, I got to work in supply chain, I got to work in marketing, I got to work in strategy. Uh, So I was constantly interacting with different sides of the business, manufacturing, and just being able to understand how a business of that scale operates and functions and goes to market and develops ecosystems and even envisions a future where, you know, we would be sitting there thinking like, what is the world going to look like in 10 and 20 years? And what is the technology we have to create today to facilitate that world? So also making me think very far ahead and and envisioning those kinds of concepts. uh, Those were all parts of my experience uh, 
I guess I call it growing up at Intel, so to speak. Yeah. I mean, what an invaluable experience to start your career, I would argue. Oh, 100%. I couldn't what, have picked a better and, journey and, for myself. And not, not to lead the witness too much here, but it, yeah, I, I mean, it seems like your startup journey, can you imagine starting, you know, Botco AI then versus later? I mean, it, or like sometimes people do that right out of college, right? Start a company. What advice do you have for founders based on your experience? I mean, I, I see a lot of great young entrepreneurs that do a, an awesome job. So I don't know that it's a, a negative necessarily. But in my case, just having understood how to how to create businesses from scratch and see what the long term outcome needs to be was very helpful for me in my experience. So I don't think I would have been able to lead as wisely as I can now without those experiences. Um, you know, and I had a front row seat to the creation of Moore's Law, right? And so even to today, I mean, Gordon Moore, that everybody forgets Gordon Moore, that whole concept was created at, at Intel. We developed that concept and we brought it out to the world. And when people talk about Moore's Law, they're talking about this notion that processing power and costs, you know, slices in half every couple of years. And so um, today we're on this AI, you know, massive hockey stick growth trajectory, and all of that is being enabled because of these kind of Moore's Law type of uh, developments that have happened in technology. Yeah, for sure. I mean, what a great, what a great lead, and we're gonna go there. Don't yes. worry, we'll go there. <laughs> AI is coming. We're gonna definitely good, talk good. about it. And uh, I mean, I'm excited because it's hot right now, especially. So this is so opportune to have you on right now. But we'll, but before we do, I just want to kind of f finish the the prequel of the story here, leading up to you starting uh, Botco. Because uh, you, you you also went to uh, Arizona State University as well, right? Some yes, yes. That was while I was at Intel. So Intel um, was awesome about sponsoring my MBA. Um, they you know, would identify emerging leaders, people that they wanted to grow. Um, and so I was sponsored and they paid for me to get my MBA while I was also working. So, you know, which I thought was really great because um, other than the fact that I had no weekends and no sleep, right, <laughs> during yeah. that couple of years, um, it was great to be able to learn theoretically these concepts, but then actually see them in application in my day-to-day -day work. And so I felt like I had the best MBA experience one could have because it, I wasn't just learning from a textbook or from a lecture. I was then seeing those concepts applied or even getting an opportunity to utilize those concepts in my work environment. Very practical, very applied. And, and I'm sure, you know, not the easy way to do it, but but definitely the meaningful and, and valuable way to do it. So, yeah. Yeah, sometimes the best way is not the easiest. That's ah. what I have learned in my life. <laughs> <laughs> Good one. Good one. Good, good one for the, the highlight, the episode highlight. Yeah. Um, what about, uh, so, so did you at any point in your career, I mean, it seems like you are launched in this incredible direction with, with Intel, things are going great. They're sending, they're, they're doubling down on you, investing in their best and brightest to get advanced degrees. Like, did you at any point have this inkling or itch? Like maybe I'll be a founder, maybe I'll start something on my own. Or how did that come about? Oh, yeah. So I had just had my second child um, and I was on maternity leave during this time. And there was a big reorg that took place at Intel. And I didn't particularly love the way that my team and, and myself was being reorganized. You know, so I was like, hmm, I don't know about that. You know, sometimes big companies do things that it, to me, it didn't make sense at that time. And, uh, you know, I was on this on this leave and um, a friend of mine approached me from undergrad who said, hey, you know, my company is, is looking for a consultant that knows all these different things. And you came to mind like you understand these things because you've done them. And I know that you are the best at this just from having, you know, been your colleague all these years. And he said, would you be willing to come talk to my CEO? He's just looking for some advice on a few things. And so I went to meet with the CEO and then that turned into a business opportunity. And he said, hey, could we contract your services? You could help us go through this. They were trying to expand into Canada and do some global expansion work. They were um, bringing on a bunch of technology and software. And he just needed somebody who could think through all of these different pieces at the same time. And I was like, well, I have this great job at Intel I'm supposed to go back to in a few months. 
uh, but tell me more. Like, you know, let's talk about this. Maybe this is something cool. Opportunistic. Yeah. And pretty soon I realized I could pretty much like triple my income by leaving Intel and doing this consulting gig, which really I ended up folding into a company called Ideas Collide, which became my first business uh, where we did more consulting, managed services, agency, digital uh, marketing work for large uh, brands, Fortune 500 companies and big organizations uh, that needed those services. So that was my first business, actually. And I loved um, being my own boss. I loved uh, just kind of the the no safety net, like this whole idea that everything you do matters was very important to me. And I loved being able to see like instant results to my work, instant impact. There's kind of a gratification that comes with that, that sometimes is hard to get at a big company. Um, Especially as you kind of move up into management, there's like less of those experiences uh, every day, which, which is what I love, where I love to be is like to feel the, see, be in the action, I guess, so to speak. Tip of the spear. (laughs) Yeah. Wonderful. So ideas collide. So you you took that. By the way, what kind of what time frame are we talking now? Like what what year is it? Um, this is like the uh, late first decade of the 2010s, like toward the end. Yeah. So oh, I want to say kind of oh six, seven, eight, nine. That period was when I started. I left until in oh six. Okay. Mm-hmm. And so you took I how 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 far along did kind of the ideas collide the the marketing agency go until you decided. There's something else I want to do because was Bot was Botco next? Was it was it? After? Yes, yeah, Botco came next after that. So, you know, at Ideas Collide, I mean, we grew that business to 12 million in in run rate. Uh, great business, uh, big team, an organization of about 60 employees, 60 plus in Arizona and Portland. I, there's actually an office in Portland. <laughs> <laughs> you just couldn't get away from that rainy weather. No, you had, to, no. had to go back and visit sometime. Yeah. Exactly. And um, great business. But, you know, after a decade, a business starts to get to that, like, I call it like the steady state, right? Where it's no longer, I mean, it's still growing and there's still, it's still dynamic, but it's no longer that like nascent, high energy, like we're creating something new every single day, kind of an environment. And I had also realized that, you know, we spent a lot of time implementing software and getting software to do things that they hadn't been intended to do out of the box. I was working with a lot of these marketing automation platforms that were feeling very outdated to me, like Eloqua, for example. And even Salesforce was starting to feel like clunky and, (laughs) you know, like there's a better way to do this. And right around then was when I met, uh, I was at a conference called Girls in Tech. It was a catalyst conference for Girls in Tech. And I met uh, Anu Shukla. She was a speaker at the conference and I was a, a sponsor. And she came off the stage and she was like, hey, I'm looking for a charger. My phone just died. Do you happen to have a charger? And I said, oh, yeah, of course. You know, and so I I let her borrow my charger. And so while her phone is charging, we started to talk and realized like, wow, we had so much in common here. I had been implementing these software products that she had been creating in Silicon Valley. Uh, She had she had actually uh, been the founder of Rubrik, which was one of the early marketing automation platforms and then a whole bunch of other ad tech products that I had also been familiar with. And so it was just for me, it was like meeting the maker of all of these products that I had been involved with. And in our journeys, we're very much like parallels to each other, but on the opposite side of the supply chain. Like she was the maker of the software. I was the user and implementer of the software. And so we hit it off. We had a really great discussion and we both talked about how, you know, marketing automation had kind of been stagnant. It had kind of gotten stuck in where it had been created, but nobody had innovated in a really interesting way since then. And she's like, you know, we should bring in Chris Maida. You know, I did this last company with him. He has a lot of really good ideas. And um, so she introduced me to Chris. Chris is a, our CTO now, uh, but he came out of the MIT AI lab. He got his PhD in Carnegie, at Carnegie Mellon, also in computer science and applied uh, AI. I mean, two of the best, <laughs> by the way, two of the best places in the country for this kind of stuff. Exactly, I mean, right? Yeah. yeah. And uh, he had also just gotten back from a trip to China where he had noticed this conversational interface really taking off called WeChat where all business was being conducted on WeChat. And he was like, you know, I have this idea that probably the modern customer experience platform is going to be more chat driven and it's going to require AI to make it happen. 
And what what year was this? Because like probably WeChat was not even known at this point, right? Was not mainstream yet. Is that not uh, not in the U.S.? Nobody really knows WeChat here uh, as much. But it was like in the 2016s, I want to say 2016, 2017 time so frame. It was early, early, very early, yeah, yeah, very early. And and the three of us, we we agreed, like, yeah, you know, conversational interfaces. That's if you look at how people prefer to communicate. Everybody's texting each other all day long. You know, Slack was starting to take off, and everybody liked messaging. And you know, using these chat channels had become almost a preferred way of interacting. Um, in the gaming world, products like Discord were taking off, right? Yep. And so, you know, you could see these trend lines starting to happen. And we were thinking, how do we help businesses capture that capability and make it available in their uh, customer interactions as a mm-hmm. channel that is truly helping to nurture those customers and helping them move toward either a buying decision or re-engagement um, and and really to have a much stronger relationship with our customers using these chat services. Wow. So, so but for a phone, just to recap a little bit here, but for a phone charger, <laughs> uh, a new connects you to Chris Meta, and Chris, like then you and Chris are like, let's do this. Like let's launch a company. You're like, what? How did it? Yes, that's exactly. Yeah, I mean, we met. We we met a few times. Obviously, you know, we all flew. We we actually lived in three different cities, so we had to fly in to uh, see each other in different places. So we would either go meet in the Bay Area, or we would meet here in Scottsdale, where I am. And that's how we, you know, it was a couple of these kind of meetings where we would just brainstorm. Like we would whiteboard all day long and kind of come up with concepts, then we would go out and test these concepts. We would, you know, Anu and I had very deep Rolodexes in the marketing executive type of world. And so she would call her contacts. I would call my contacts. We would set up these meetings to show our ideas. You know, half of them would just be thrown out, right? No, that's no good. That's no good. Let's try this. Maybe if you did that, you know, so there was a lot of meandering, right, to, to really lock in on the idea. And when it finally came together was when we were in one of these meetings and the person, we were talking to the CMO of a major uh, hotel company. And she said, she's just like, how much would it cost me to have this? I, I need this. And I was like, whoa, wait, what, what, pause. Like, we don't even actually have it yet. We're just, this is just slides. What this are you referring to? And she's like, okay. She's like, I want what you're, I want what you're telling me. How do I get it? And we were like, okay, so, you know, having had a background in selling to big companies, I was like, well, let's get a PO in place. Why don't you prepay half of it now? And in six months, we'll deliver it to you. Uh-huh. Very good. <laughs> and that's how, uh, that's how we sold our first customer was getting, doing these feedback sessions. And it was, but it was literally a marketing tool. Like that was the original, the original strategy and kind of vision. Yes. Yeah. It was intended to be a consumer engagement platform uh, using AI. Fascinating. To answer questions and help people make uh, buying decisions about products and services. That was essentially the high level concept. Very cool. And uh, so this, so, you know, bootstrapping it to from the idea phase to uh, your first pay. They always say, right, the best checks are not the invest. You don't want the checks from the investors. We want them from customers. You did it. Yeah. And I didn't even know any investors. So I couldn't have even I wouldn't have I wouldn't have even known who to call to to get a check. So I only knew customers. I knew people in the industry. So that's who I was talking to. Good for you. Yeah. And by the way, so at that time too in Arizona, like 2016 in Arizona, were there were there investors? Like, were there some seed stage funds? There's a couple. Not no. There was a. I think Greyhawk has been around for a while. They're like the only, but they were more like a Series A. Um, right. So nobody was doing real seed seed stage investing at the time. Uh, there were a couple of angel groups that were starting to come together, but they were very early yes, on. Right. Yes, they were very early on. I didn't even know that they existed, so I wouldn't have even known to call them or to check. (laughs) Good for you. (laughs) So the only place I knew where to go to get money was potential customers. That's how I knew how to start things. Amazing. And so how did it, and and a new, obviously she's a co-founder, but was she, she was involved with you and Chris or like, what was the initial team? Was just the three of you or did you? Yes. The three of us that were doing everything. And so we would kind of divide up our responsibilities based on what needed to get done. So I tended to focus a lot on kind of helping to concept the the product from a customer perspective. And then Chris would 
obviously figure out how it needed to work technically. Um, so I was think of me as kind of like the voice of the customer, Chris really, okay, the architect, how are we going to put this together? And then Anu really guiding us toward, okay, what are the stages that a startup needs to go through? Like, how do we need to prove this out? How do we get to MVP? And how do we get to even validation from the market that what we're doing is worth our time? Um, so, you know, all of us, all of us were doing everything, you know, calling people, setting up meetings, uh, working on the product, you know, you're just like all hands on deck kind of a, a situation where we're all, you know, involved every single day on making this, getting this off the ground. And as you know, going to ze- from zero to one is a lot of work, like <laughs> exhausting to take an idea out of your head and actually pr- make a product that a customer is willing to pay you for. There's a, there's a long, a lot of work between those two things. <laughs> totally. Well, and then once you once you get there, there's still a matter of finding product market fit. You know, just because one person's willing to pay you for something doesn't necessarily mean you have product market fit, right? Oh, yeah. So, there's and, a lot of iteration that has to happen. Yeah. And spoiler alert, this is not where Botco lands. Like, this isn't what you do today, right? Mm-hmm. So, Correct, yeah. So what what was that journey from from uh, marketing, you know, marketing, uh, you know, tool to what you are today? Yes. So, you know, I think the initial, that kernel of still being a consumer engagement service, right, a tool that helps businesses and consumers interact more effectively, that is still at the core of what we do. Sure. Um, I think what has really changed is maybe more the market or how we do it or the level of granularity where we do this. So, you know, we uh, we raised a, a tiny little seed round, pre-seed round, right around early 2020 um, through these angel groups in Arizona, lots of angels here. So that was super helpful. And we launched our product, our commercial SaaS product, and then boom, there's a pandemic, Right. So <laughs> best time ever to launch. <laughs> although, although for some people, I, ima- I was going to say, I would imagine for you, this could have this translated into some opportunity, perhaps, right? Correct. Yes. Yeah. So uh, it was at first a really difficult transition because, for example, the hospitality industry pretty much went dark. So they had to, you know, some of these uh, hotel companies basically had to shut their shutter their businesses for three to six months in some cases. And so, uh, but while that was happening, um, we started to get phone calls or, you know, inbound from uh, healthcare organizations that were saying, hey, um, I'm getting a lot of uh, calls or I need help really digitizing my whole patient experience. And part of that includes, you know, we had this call center, but I can't even have people in my call center anymore because of COVID restrictions. Um, we have all these problems. Um, and so we need to figure out digital channels to deliver all this. And we're thinking that uh, you guys could help us. Could you help us? Right. And so um, we actually took on our first healthcare customer uh, right there around April of 2020. And it was a company that was having to spin up immunization services very quickly to make these uh, immunizations available uh, in 10 different states. So uh, we quickly trained the AI, which, you know, Chris had built some great tools to train. And that's really part of the core product is, you know, how do we create these fine-tuned models around specific topic areas and uh, subjects? And so we had to quickly spin up an AI service that could answer questions about immunizations and immunization records across 10 different states and deploy those uh, very quickly on behalf of this customer. So that was the beginning of like how we ended up in healthcare. Then, um, you know, there were actually two pandemics happening, the COVID issue, and then there was a co-occurring disorder with mental health crises taking. So there was kind of like this, at the same time that COVID was taking off, so were a lot of uh, behavioral health providers realizing that, wow, there's a problem here. And so we started to get inquiries from that world about, hey, how do we use an AI chat service to better um, handle those inquiries that are coming in, figure out who needs care, what level of care, when, get them scheduled, verify their insurance. Could we do this all using AI? And it was really our customers that told us what they needed in 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 this situation. And we, our product was flexible enough that it could be trained on new topics it had a workflow engine that could be uh, modified very easily with a GUI to wow. create new workflows depending on your industry. 
And so we said, sure, our product can already do all these things. It wasn't necessarily designed with that in mind, but because it's so flexible in terms of how it can generate these workflows and generate these uh, training topics, then sure, we could train it on your content as well. Um, and one of our early customers, they gave us, um, this was really pivotal, they gave us about two years worth of call transcripts from their call center, which wow. is like a treasure trove for a startup oh my. like us. That's, yeah. Two that's years everything. worth, millions of conversations that had already taken place over the phone. Wow. They gave us this data, these transcripts, and we essentially trained our models on those transcripts. And we had multiple customers do this for us because they were in such a state of emergency and need, dire need, that they were willing. They're like, we will give you whatever data you want to train your AI. Just take it and get us up and running as quickly as possible. <laughs> so Chris yeah. and his team were working you know, around the clock training these models on, this, on these transcripts. And that's how we were able to quickly get these AI services uh, trained on those particular topic areas. Very cool. And I want to I want to go I want to talk a little bit about I now may be a good time to dive into a question that I was going to save for later. But, um, you know, chat GPT, like a lot of people might who are listening to this episode that are newly familiar with this with this wild new thing might say, well, wait a minute, like train a model. What's the big deal? Like chat GPT is already trained. Why can't why can't chat GPT just have these conversations about mental health or patient follow? Like what what's the big deal? Right. <laughs> Wrong. Exactly. Tell us about that. Tell us how important that is, because I love that you highlighted that, and it's so, it's so critical. I think that people understand the value of that training data. And sure. Well, the data we were training on was patient provider interactions, which is very different from what the LLMs are trained on, which is like more general uh, information that's available widely on the internet. Uh, the stuff that we trained on was proprietary information, content that is usually not publicly released because it has personal health information in it. So you can't, right? There's HIPAA, there's compliance reasons why that data has to be very tightly controlled. And so we had to, even to access that data, we had to sign BAAs and NDAs with these customers, really be very careful with how we were handling the data. It had to be anonymized in terms of, you know, removing um, individually identifiable information, things like that. So it's not like you just, you know, go and upload all these transcripts to the internet for the world to consume, because that would be a huge violation of people's privacy. Um, so that's number reason number one, right? So we're we're really training our models on, um, I would call more privately held conversations. Number one that are very specific to uh, certain practice areas, right? Um, not on just generally available information on the internet. Um, the other thing is really important is in um, these models is a workflow, right? And understanding what is the standard of care? What is the appropriate next step for a different situation, right? Those, those things all have to be taken into account when training these models and, and corresponding workflows. So um, again, you know, GPT is pr prone to hallucinations. It'll make up something that sounds really compelling, um, <laughs> but it could also be very wrong. And so, you know, those two things, LLMs have a really important place in the world and we um, use them in certain ways. We use them to predict questions that people might ask. We use them to come up with, um, even understand maybe slang or other kinds of um, topics, but we do not, we do not give over our data to OpenAI because the data we're handling is proprietary, it's private, um, it has to be securely managed in a way that is compliant with, you know, the laws and regulations that govern this kind of uh, consumer information. Yeah. And and by the way, for our listeners, LLM, you've said LLM. Oh, sorry. I just want to make sure a language model. Large or, language or large, models. Large language models. Yes. LLMs yeah. are essentially a, the, the category, the umbrella category where products like ChatGPT, uh, Bard, if you've heard of that one, Flan is another one. Those all sit underneath. Those are examples of different large language models that exist. It's this. It's the magic sauce that does the the, the shiny yes. stuff in the background for you. The tricks tricks you into thinking <laughs> it's really cool. Yeah. But what I love about LLMs is think about it. Now everybody understands conversational interfaces, and they're like, well, of course, like yeah, it's so much easier just to ask 
exactly what you're looking for versus go to a search and get 20 documents and have to peruse the 20 documents to find the answer you're looking for. Now people get what I was saying, what we've been saying all along. It's no 2022. <laughs> right? Oh like yeah. a search result where then you have to like oh. dive in. Ugh. Right? <laughs> Why would I do that? Exactly. Well, and, and I also imagine, uh, you know, when, when you think about, so first healthcare, I mean, launching this business in 2016, incredible, incredibly visionary. First healthcare customer in 2020, still like way ahead of the curve here. But I imagine even in 2020, the notion of conversational eye, you probably had a lot of explaining to do. Like people were probably like, how does this work? What is this? What's the magic here? Right? I mean, you don't have to do that so much anymore. Oh, yes. It's, it saves me hours of explaining. So I am super grateful. Uh, I feel like maybe I manifested this. now. <laughs> I'm not that powerful. <laughs> but, <laughs> uh, but the whole idea of just, you know, it, it's like when you see the world and you know that the world is going there and it finally arrives there, you're like, this is so awesome because what I, I wasn't just hallucinating. It was true. <laughs> like this is what's going to happen. And this is how people will expect to interact with businesses. I mean, this whole idea of sending people to your website and trying to dig through to find answers from your content, it's just not going to fly. Like people just, they're just wanting to text, like, tell me blank, help me do this. Show me that. That's all I want to consume is exactly what I need, when I need it and how I need it. Nothing else. Yeah. What do you what do you think like philosophically what's the next step beyond this because I feel like we're here now we're in this phase of ex expecting to be able to do that where does it go where does it go from here what's your what's your long on you know AI and how it's going to sort of change change our lives uh, ho hopefully for the good <laughs> <laughs> Yes you know it's so interesting I think about um, these interfaces really being applied to all aspects of our lives um, you know, when I was at Intel, we created this idea called the Internet of Things, where it was this notion that computing would become permeated throughout every environment in which we operated. And so this idea that computers would go into cars, they would be in your refrigerator, they would be in your uh, workspace, they would be your whiteboard, they would be your, um, you know, in your landscaping, right, in your heating system, that compute would take over every a physical interface of our life. Um, and so we envisioned that world. And so this is just another layer on top of that. Now that compute is existing in all of those places, so too will AI and conversational interfaces, whether they're through text or through voice or through video. Now all of those um, interaction points are going to become AI enabled as well. And so, but our, like our imaginations can't even conceive of that of how that will change our lives and our world right now, because we're just, our brains are kind of like little, <laughs> right? Like, right. <laughs> it's, it's so much smarter than us, this AI. Exactly. But, well, well I, I think about too, like in, even in the last 10 years, I think about like on the, on the compute side of the house, all the things we've gotten really good at measuring things, right? Like mm -hmm. you can measure anything. You can have, I have an air sensor in my house that measures air quality based on all these crazy factors, but it doesn't really do anything other than like, oh, it's cool. Like, uh, oh, it's good air quality in, in, in you know, today. But like, it, I almost feel like there's a layer of connectedness between these things where we now get efficiency and optimization in addition to what we're already measuring. Right. All those data, data collection technologies can now interface with each other, can now talk to each other, right? And can help optimize situations based on parameters that we have given it. So maybe I want to optimize my home around air quality, or I want to optimize my home around silence and quiet because I need to concentrate, or I want to optimize my home around music, right? Whatever that experience is I want to create, we can determine those parameters. And then all of these systems work together to generate that like environment that we wish for. It's, it's kind of like we'll be able to wish things and they'll just be happening for us. It's kind of crazy. It is kind of crazy. And then and then to take it one step further, eventually we won't need to wish anything because the home will know better than us what we need <laughs> and it will just do that. Right? I feel like my nest is already doing that and it really bothers me because because <laughs> <laughs> the uh, so my you know the age old like male to female, who's cold and who's hot, right? Mm -hmm. uh, my son is always turning the thermostat way down and I have it like programmed. I have it set. Like I've set up, I thought I gave it rules and then he overrides the rules. So we're always in this battle. So yeah. And then the nest <laughs> is so confused. What's going on? Yeah, who's, 
whose rules am I following? Rebecca's or Alex's? Yeah. Yes. Yep. What about on a on kind of a serious topic though? You know, there's there's been there's been a lot of uh, you know kind of AI banter lately about slowing it down. You know, people urging Microsoft and Google pump the brakes. Um, you know, some people have said like we need to slow, we need to stop development for six months. Do you have any thoughts on that? And I always kind of like react to that, like, what's six months going to do? Like, like, like I, I don't know. Maybe is there a way for us to better understand that or is it necessary or what's the downside here? I mean, a lot of that is driven by fear because the people who are asking for things to slow down are the ones who are not winning the race. So, you know, I, I would say the people who are winning the race aren't asking for slowdowns. It's the people losing the race. <laughs> Yeah, it's like the tortoise in the hair. It's like, Dad, just take a nap near the finish line oh. while the tortoise like keeps, you know, come on, come on. <laughs> the tortoise overtakes. So uh, I do think there's some important ethical considerations that we should all be thinking about. And actually, I have a webinar tomorrow on this very topic around privacy, security, and compliance within the use of AI. And really making sure that um, as our organizations start to adopt these technologies, that we aren't forgetting about those important things. Um, so, you know, OpenAI, the problem with it making being so easy is that it's now becoming a huge leakage source for companies because people are literally putting their company information in there to get data back, responses back, not realizing that they're essentially giving away proprietary information to OpenAI. Um, Reddit just announced that they're going to start charging OpenAI for accessing its content. Um, so they're saying, no, 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 you can't just use our all of our IP for free. Like you can pay for it, but you can't just have it. And so I think that, um, you know, that's probably where the slowing down is coming from. People just saying like, yeah. I need to catch up to these things. Uh, but I mean, when have you ever seen anyone? I mean, how how can it be slowed down? There's there's no. I mean, yeah. it's just it's a it's like yelling at the ocean, right? Like <laughs> we should have slowed down Moore's law while we were at it. We should just yeah. do that. Nobody so, told yeah. you to slow down your development ever. <laughs> right, right. Well, and and also too, I I think about uh you know th these you, you know the business value that's being created. You know, there's there's probably hesitancy of like, <laughs> is this going to replace massive swaths of like just just society jobs like what what's the impacts going to have like are we ready for that you know do you have any do you have any thoughts on that like just in terms I mean of we've never been ready for big technology transitions um, they have always you know happened and the people who were best at adapting and applying and leveraging those capabilities are the ones who thrived as a result right so you know if you were still making a living off horseshoes. Well, yeah, you certainly didn't love the car, right? <laughs> your horseshoe business. <laughs> yeah. Unless you pivoted to tires, you know, unless you pivoted to like manufacturing tires. Exactly. Yeah. So it's the same thing. I think, um, I you know, and it, but it's just happening at a more massive scale. I don't want to diminish it because it is a big change. It's, it's probably bigger than all of those previous changes combined, the industrial revolution. I mean, the agricultural revolution, the industrial revolution, even the automotive, you know, how, how much that changed the world. So, you know, this is akin to maybe all of those things put together, in my opinion. Um, so some of us are going to struggle with it for sure. But I think that um, the organizations, the people who will succeed in this transition are the ones who take the time to understand it, really understand how to apply it in their business, how to utilize it as best as possible and make you know, make their businesses oriented around those capabilities as opposed to rejecting them. I mean, they're here. So. Yeah, exactly. Uh, well, uh, we're just about out of time, but I just want to kind of finish up on a couple things uh, be before we are, you know, the first is, so you raised a seed in 2021. Great, great seed round. Um, you're kind of, you're kind of off, off to the races now. It seems like in terms of scale and growth, what, what's in the future, what's in store? For, for you and, and for the team and what, what's getting you excited? What's uh, what's next? Yeah, absolutely. So we're um, trying to, you know, we're raising again because we see this huge opportunity. Um, for us, you know, we're really thinking about how do we get our product more widely used, right? We know we have this amazing technology. We've now created automations that can very quickly train models that are uniquely designed around specific uh, industries, capabilities, even um, vertical markets, things like that. And so now we just need a really great uh, 
partner, financial partner that can help us scale this, right? Help us think beyond like, you know, we're in a niche right now because as a small seed stage company, we have to be, right? We can't be all things to all people at this point in our life cycle. Uh, eventually we can be, but today we have to be focused and all great startups have started with some level of focus. And so for us, it's really uh, helping us um, determine what's the most appropriate way to expand our TAM in a sense. And how do we um, really get our product in the hands of more people that can make use of this capability that is very unique and very uh, timely right now? Interesting. And do you think, could that even involve maybe maybe something you know vertical outside of healthcare even? Or is that going to continue to be... Um, No, absolutely. You know, something that's really interesting about healthcare is that um, the healthcare industry has really moved into this more what I call social determinants of health space. So healthcare organizations are now partnering with human services organizations to improve uh, people's life so they don't require so much healthcare. So if you think about, say, a heart condition or a mental health condition, usually it's prefaced by some stressor in the person's life that is creating that condition. So maybe it's diet, maybe it's access to um, proper exercise, or maybe it's uh, food insecurity or housing insecurity. So I think what, what healthcare is realizing is that if they don't pay attention to these social determinants, they're actually going to have a bigger problem on their hands in the future. And so we've already moved our product into supporting what I call uh, these social determinant type of services as well. So we've integrated, for example, with 211, which is the service that answers questions about, hey, if I need um, transportation help, if I need help with housing, where do I go? Um, And because we're now supporting these other um, service lines, you know, I, I really think of our product as being more capable of being um, tied to any kind of service that is making human life better. You know, if you really think about it, it's like, it's like that's pretty much yeah. a, a very broad category, I realize. But if if those things are addressed, then healthcare gets better because we don't we relieve the stressors that create the health conditions that land people in hospitals, etc. I love it. I love the upstream, you know, the social determinants of health. It's brilliant. And and, and actually, I, I've read, too, that uh, with, you know, conversational AI as an approach eases, eases a lot of those pathways for treatment, especially for mental health. So it's like it's a way to ease people in into what is otherwise an extremely di- difficult, high friction. Oh, process. absolutely. It's so antiquated. I mean, I always say that I'm replacing 150 150- year old technology, the telephone, right? Which is how everybody, because <laughs> they may do a Google search. I mean, this is the part that's so crazy. They might do a Google search to find a mental health provider, but then they call. I'm like, wait, why did we just go from like internet to analog, you know, to phone, to analog? It's like, let's just facilitate that chat interaction at the point of search. And that's what we're doing. We're integrating with those kinds of capabilities. So any service that you're searching for that is going to make your life better, you should be able to interact with it using chat, understand how you can totally. use that service, get it into your uh, life <laughs> and, yep. you know, start to enrich your situation. I love it. And, you know, it kind of reminds me of something that you said earlier where it's like, think back to when Alexander Graham Bell invented the telephone. Would he ever have imagined that the evolution of his solution applied to this industry would be what you have built. I mean, that, it's, it's mind-blowing. It's so crazy to think about that, right? Exactly. Like, in their mind, that would feel like reading people's minds, like mind reading, right? right? <laughs> or even crazier, maybe. I mean, yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Alien, alien race kind of stuff. That's so cool. Well, Rebecca, this has been super fun. I, I, um, I'm just, just so thankful uh, that we had you. We were able to feature you a little bit on the show today. Um, I want to end, I always like to end with kind of a, a very, you know, kind of more personal or fun question. But for you, I want to highlight, first of all, you were 2020, you were on the list of uh, a list of the most influential women in Arizona. Congratulations. Oh, thank well you. deserved. <laughs> yeah. Um, but I, I just want want to know as, as somebody w- that, you know, that has that kind of presence and, and is just doing incredible things and just leading the charge, what 
What advice do you have for other women that are founders or, or perhaps other minority founders, um, especially in the region, you know, in, in our region, which is not a typical, whether that's Arizona or just more broadly, the Rocky Mountain region? Um, what advice would you have for them? Hmm. Um, you know, you know, one of the things I love about these frontier states that maybe is different from other places, uh, I would call it like old America, maybe, is that here everybody is a newcomer to some degree. And so um, I think there's just a general like welcoming culture in our communities that is, I find really exciting and that I have really taken advantage of. So the way that I became, you know, most influential is just because I got plugged in. I got plugged into the Greater Phoenix Chamber. I got plugged into the Arizona Technology Council, these kind of business groups, these groups of business leaders that would come together to help each other, however that might be. And um, by plugging into those communities, I was able to tap into a rich resource of people who were just eager to help. Like everybody wants to help somebody else that's coming here to build a business. There's so much energy, and I think you felt it at Venture Madness, around growing the Arizona business community, growing the Arizona startup community, that it's like everybody's conspiring to help us. We just have to show up and show that, hey, I'm willing to, to get your help and I want to help you and you can help me. Let's help each other out. And that's that's just essentially been how I've done it. And, and um, you know, I have found so many amazing partners here in, in Arizona, Startup AZ Foundation, the Arizona Commerce Authority, this, the, um, you know, the Venture Madness Organization, to name a few, the Greater Phoenix Chamber, all of these that um, are just full of business leaders who want to help and who want to support growth in our communities. And so I would just say, get plugged in, get to meet all those people and just help each other out. That's it. Like it happens. Great advice. Simple, <laughs> but so on point. Great advice. Um, well, thank you. Thank you for sharing that, Rebecca. Once again, just a pleasure to have you and, and just a tremendous thought leader in the AI space and the startup space in the Arizona ecosystem. Uh, to conclude, why don't you just tell our listeners a little bit more about where they can find you and Botco AI online? Absolutely. So start with our website, botco.ai. We're also very active on LinkedIn. If you look me up, Rebecca Clyde, or just the company, Botco AI, we post almost daily. Uh, we have webinars. So if you want to learn about what we're doing in uh, the generative AI space, we actually have a webinar tomorrow with our CTO, Chris Meta and Anu Shukla. So you'll get to hear directly from them. And uh, consume our content. I mean, we're always here to share, to learn, to grow, comment. And uh, I would love to just get to know you if you're listening to this episode and answer your questions and, and help uh, support your business and how it might best take advantage of generative AI. What a great offer. Thanks, Rebecca. All right. Thank you, Les. It was a pleasure. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of Found in the Rockies. You can find links in the show notes or go to nextfrontiercapital.com to get transcripts, links, and contact information for today's guests. If you like what you heard and want more, please don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe to get notified as our new episodes drop every two weeks. We'll see you next time.